You're listening to a UCD Humanities Institute podcast. This podcast series features recordings of lectures, seminars and events hosted by or associated with the University College Dublin Humanities Institute. Our podcasts are available on Apple, Spotify and on SoundCloud. For more information and to listen to hundreds of podcasts, go to ucd.ie forward slash humanities. This episode features the Humanities Institute's annual Distinguished Guest Lecture for 2024. The lecture, Social Pathologies of Contemporary Civilization, Diagnoses and Therapies, was given by Professor Kieran Keohan from University College Cork. Thank you very much to um, the Institute for inviting me. I love the, the fact that it's a multidisciplinary audience. I, I work in a department of sociology and criminology, and sometimes I'm more comfortable working across the humanities and social sciences with uh, people like Donica and Seamus and, and so on and so forth, then working in my own field, which is increasingly being, if you like, colonised by a sort of a, let's say, mathematical kind of instrumental uh, 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 sociology. Not all, not all, but uh, let me talk to you about this project that I'm involved in called the Social Pathologies of Contemporary Civilization, And I'll try to give you a, a sense, uh, kind of an, an overview of that uh, project area, let's say. And I'll give you some, uh, some contexts uh, for my talk uh, today also that are relevant uh, uh, in this. And I'll try to uh, outline first what I think are some of the social pathologies of contemporary civilization. Social pathologies of contemporary civilization. So it's a broad compass. And then I'll also try to, having offered a sort of a diagnostics, point to some kind of direction towards a therapeutics. Now, I was tweaking this down to the last minute, so I, I, I hope it hangs together. Uh, and if it doesn't hang together altogether, you'll, you'll forgive me and maybe we'll continue the conversation uh, uh, at another time. But let me... Let me first begin uh, with some context for, for my talk with you today and the invitation and so on, because I want to thank you for this invitation. It honours me to be called a distinguished uh, uh, lecturer to the Humanities Institute, and I'll try to re reciprocate that gift, if you like, the gift of your invitation, and honour you, because I want to talk about some important graduates from this particular institution and how you've contributed and what you've contributed and so on in that particular context, our particular contribution to what Habermas called at one point the philosophical discourse of modernity. And I think that's very important. What is our contribution to that and, and, and so on, and how can we, as it were, work uh, with that? Uh, but I want to kind of suggest to you, by way of setting the context, that this, what we're doing here right now, where you honour me with an invitation and I return to you uh, with some ideas that you might find helpful or interesting or whatever, is uh, what we do when we constitute an academic community. Community, from munis, the key term is munis, it means gift and it means also world, mundus. Right? That's uh, Tim Ingold, he's an important contemporary anthropologist. And he says basically, you know, that an academic community, any community, any uh, social world is constituted fundamentally by the general economy of the gift relation. That's Marcel Mauss, 
um, and, and so on. So what we're doing right now, insofar as it's an exchange of ideas, an exchange of gifts and so on and so forth, by which we uh, honour one another, participate in a conversation and so on, we make our little world, our special world and, and so on. And that's why I think I, I'm so happy to see many live people here because we, like you, have the same sort of difficulty. The, the impact of you know, social distancing and so on and so forth has uh, kind of damaged in some way that uh, the life world of, uh, of uh, gift relations and it's really good to see it um, as if we're being uh, reconstituted. Now, another context. So that's my first context I want to give you, that this is about a, a general economy of gift exchange that constitutes an academic community. The second context is, uh, this is a personal thing, but exactly this time, exactly one year ago, I was on my way flying back from Athens. And uh, we were on sabbatical leave in Athens, and uh, my wife and collaborator in everything I do, basically, Carmen Cooling, had uh, just been diagnosed with ovarian cancer. So that was exactly one year ago. We were flying back then. It happened on Tuesday, and we were flying back on the Friday, and so on and so forth. And of course, as you can imagine, that's, uh, you know, uh, if I'm talking abstractly about social pathologies, then you're confronted with something very immediate and very direct, and so on and so forth. Now, uh, what emerged from that, of course, uh, is a whole series of experiences. Uh, I should say that Carmen is fine. We got an all clear, actually, just uh, uh, on the anniversary of diagnosis. We got, uh, 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 I've never heard the word normal sound so good, actually. It was an interesting thing. Everything is normal. Great, right? But uh, anyway, um, uh, we were thrown then into an interesting world. And the interesting world is, of course, uh, uh, systems of health care and systems of diagnosis and medical systems and so on and so forth. And that's all very, very important. Uh, but what was really crucial to it, of course, was kind of the life world of the uh, ill and uh, carers and uh, how much that life world uh, sustains the, uh, the whole uh, system of medical care and so on and so forth. Very, very, uh, uh, very significant. Because, of course, I live in Limerick and our hospital was the University Hospital Limerick. And the University Hospital Limerick is well known to you from all the bad statistics in the paper. It's the most always, the most overcrowded and the least well-resourced hospital in the, uh, in the country. So, you know, what, uh, what um, keeps it going? Uh, because our experience there, I have to say, was absolutely wonderful, you know, in terms of uh, uh, the quality of uh, professional care from consultants and so on, but uh, all the way down through uh, nursing, all the way down to the general, if you like, the everyday life world of the hospital and the cancer department and, and so on and so forth. People are friendly and kind and uh, uh, decent, as well as being... Uh, 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 super uh, uh, professional. And what you see, of course, is that, as it were, uh, the, uh, the resources of the life world uh, compensate always for, as it were, s uh, systems failings. And by systems failings, I mean, as we all know, the way in which uh, the healthcare system is uh, taken apart by uh, privatization, uh, neoliberal agenda, for instance, on the one hand, by uh, cutbacks, by hiring freezes and uh, all of that kind of thing, and by, if you like, the managerialism of the hospital, that rather than investing in good public healthcare facilities, you instead impose new tiers of management that, uh, you know, find uh, cutbacks and uh, places to, uh, to, uh, to make uh, e economies and so on, meanwhile subventing all the time private medicine, private hospitals, etc., etc. 
So, uh, and, and what that resource is, as it were, uh, there's two sources of it. One is, as it were, the importance of vocation. Vocation, and I mean, I'm flagging here Max Weber and politics as a vocation, science as a vocation, so on. The dedicated uh, professional uh, people who are oriented to an ideal, an ideal of uh, care in this uh, particular uh, case. So, uh, but you know, vocation is a scarce resource. It's not something, but of course, it's the resource that's systematically mined and undermined uh, by you know the uh, privatization of health and so on and so forth. And, turning everything into profit, um, 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 etc. And uh, I'll just tell you one small little anecdote about that. One night, uh, Carmen is in the uh, um, high dependency. High dependency is the thing. There's intensive care, then there's high dependency, right? And there are 22 beds in high dependency and four more beds in the hallway. Now, every one of these people is out from uh, surgery. They're not in intensive care. They're in high dependency. How many nurses are on? Two. Two nurses are on. Right? One of them is a nurse of 25 years. She's from the Philippines. She's wonderful, and she's running the whole uh, show. She's relying on an agency nurse because agency nurses are cheaper than having actual nurses. And the agency nurse uh, comes in, and Ian was telling us, basically, that actually she's better off on her own without the agency nurse because the agency nurse is a different one every other week and doesn't know where the basic things are. Where do I find this? Where do I find that? Where do I find the other thing? And so on and so forth. So, Edine was telling us then basically that uh, she is becoming gradually burnt out by that. So this is a person with a wonderful uh, uh, vocation. Uh, she, her life is uh, dedicated to the life world of uh, the hospital and so on and so forth. But the way in which that resource is being relied upon and extracted and worn out is a cause for uh, uh, um, um, great concern. So uh, that, uh, uh, I, I, I have two people I want to name here, uh, uh, thinking about the life world and the importance of the life world, uh, I have to thank uh, Professor Andreas Hess, who recently wrote a very, very interesting, I found an interesting and also sort of sad account of the closure of the common room here at the, the staff common room at the UCD, and the impact that that has on, as it were, the life world of the university, of exchanges, of relationships, of meetings, and so on, of this, this kind of a body, you know, that is, in, in, in fact, rather than uh, 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 fostering and developing a, a general economy of the gift, it actually is a form of theft takes away something quite systematically, quite deliberately, and that theft, as it were, then causes all sorts of uh, problems and difficulties, right? So I'll just uh, leave that uh, there, and that, uh, that idea that uh, you developed, Andreas, I think was very, very important. And then uh, I'll also flag another colleague, uh, recently retired from sociology, Tom Inglis, wrote also an extremely interesting paper a few years ago on the life world, basically, what the life world is and how, uh, how much the taken for granted uh, is a scarce, resource, a scarce and diminishing resource. And uh, I'm going to say that, you know, the, the kind of problems we see as social pathologies of contemporary civilization have very much to do with the erosion, the colonization, the extraction. I note the extraction as a theme here in the wasteland that's left behind after the extraction, well, the resource that's being strip-mined at the moment in, uh, uh, under the auspices of the market and the uh, neoliberalism and so on is, in fact, the resource of the, the, the life world and everything that goes uh, 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 with, with that. And the, uh, uh, the other person I want to mention in this regard, of course, 
is Kathleen Lynch, her recent book, Capitalism and Care. I mean, basically, uh, you know, how, as it were, the, um, the problem of the present is how the, the gift economy, the general economy of gift exchange in the life world that, uh, in which care is located and anchored and draws its resources from uh, is, uh, on the one hand, endangered, and on the other hand, continues to be and can become for us, if we, if we realize the importance of it, a way in which we can begin to rethink something that might save us or might help us to turn around from the kind of condition that we're in uh, uh, presently. And uh, I'm involved in a little project at the moment, informed and inspired, I would say, to a great extent by those people whom I've just mentioned, called Dementia Life Worlds. It's a study of dementia, and it's looking at, as it were, the development of uh, the, the, the epidemics of dementia, not so much related to them as a brain disease or, or uh, you know, simply an inevitability, the fact that it arises from uh, senility and aging and so on and so forth, that sort of uh, general demographic uh, thing, but rather how dementia emerges in the context of the uh, dissolution, the confusion and the erasure of uh, uh, the structures and processes of the life world. The second context is this. So uh, I wouldn't be here today talking to you about social pathologies, about contemporary civilization. If it wasn't for this guy, he's a friend of mine, uh, Anders Peterson. Uh, he's a professor of sociology at Aalborg University in uh, Denmark. He uh, died by suicide um, on the May 22, so just a little uh, while ago. In that sense, why he, he and I together basically uh, formulated this project on the social pathologies of contemporary civilization. I'm going to recommend these books. We're working on this at the, at the moment. Enduring Modernity, Depression, Anxiety, and Grief in the Age of Voicelessness, or in an Age of Disenfranchisement, was actually the title first, but, but the publisher thought that didn't have the right ring to it. So in an Age of so let me recommend that uh, 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 to you. We're working it on it at the at the uh, moment. Now, so Carmen and I had some sabbatical leave, and we went to Greece. And one of our projects in Greece was to write, as it were, for this book, right? Uh, our contributions to it and so on and so forth. Um, why? Well, because uh, one of the um, reasons when somebody dies by suicide, somebody you're close to and so on and so forth, you try to figure out what that is and how it's related to the conditions of the age, right? So uh, we went to um, Athens, at least partly, you know, there's many reasons, good reasons for going to Athens, but um, it was uh, by trying to think through that idea, it's from Socrates and Cicero and uh, Erasmus and uh, Montaigne and right the way down through the tradition of the humanities and so on and so forth, the idea that to philosophize is to prepare to die, to learn how to die. It's very, very interesting. And of course, what comes out of that tradition also are the Ars Moriendi, the arts of dying, right? Uh, as a series of texts from the Middle Ages and then revised by Erasmus and so on and so forth. And um, it seems to us, of course, uh, that one of the things that's very much uh, problematic in uh, contemporary civilization is that we're, uh, as it were, all our resources are thrown towards learning how to live forever. If you think of the Silicon Valley bros, you know, and uh, they want to download their amazing brains and minds into an AI singularity, and they want to live forever, and they have... What about the guy who's got his son? I wonder how son feels about this. But anyway, he has his son mostly to be in a blood transfusion service for him. 
So he takes his son's blood every month or so to refresh him so that he, it's called probiosis, right? The craziness of it, right? So, so anyway, uh, one of the reasons we have those kind of excesses is, of course, that we have forgotten and we step away from an Ars Mariendi, you know, that we don't know, um, uh, because you can only have, as it were, a good death if you have some version of the good life. And really, also, you can only have a good life if you have some sort of a sense of uh, death. What's it for? What's the meaning of this? And so on and so forth. And I'm, I'm taking that idea from um, Georg Zemmel, a very important book that Zemmel wrote. Well, it's actually a series of essays called uh, The View of Life, uh, wherein Zemmel says, well, uh, the, the, the tacit presence of mortality is a limit horizon that gives form and meaning to life. In other words, unless we have the tacit presence of mortality in everyday life, uh, is a limit horizon that gives form and meaning to life. Unless we have some limit horizon to reflect from, to orient towards, then, as it were, life just discharges itself formlessly, f- formlessly, as Zinnel says, you know, in a condition of generalized liminality and meaninglessness and purposelessness and so on and so forth. So, um, uh, the, the, so my other concern here then is the, the life world on the one hand, and then also a, a limit horizon, you know. And I think that what we see in contemporary twenty uh, first century uh, strange, uh, uh, accelerated, desymbolized uh, hypermodernity is something like a loss of both of those things at the same time. A loss of some sort of a sense of anchorage in a life world uh, structured by communicative action, structured by gift exchange, in which institutions of friendship and so on and so forth are really, really important. And then at the other end, uh, a horizon of ideas. Uh, ideals, uh, uh, sources from which you have uh, meaning and uh, purpose and so on. And from that, and resonating somehow between grounds and horizons, you have the possibility of vocation. You have the possibility of vocation. And without grounds and horizons, uh, you know, what's it for? What are we doing, etc., etc. Everything becomes meaningless, purposeless, you know, except perhaps more of the same and so on and so forth. Miles, my friend Miles, is uh, uh, very uh, animated by that idea of vocation at the moment. You know, what is a contemporary vocation that was so important? You know, uh, for Weber, there were two possibilities, the, the Protestant ethic and the spirit of capitalism, right? That you threw yourself into work as a means of avoiding doubt so that you wouldn't have a sort of a psychosis-inducing encounter with the void, right? And that's, that's one possibility. The other thing, of course, is a higher, better version of that is the vocation, you know? That the person who, say, who can say, when they can look back in their life and say, my life has been dedicated to a cause, a higher cause, a higher view, whatever that is, and of course there's great variety, possibilities there, whatever, your life becomes meaningful, structured, uh, and uh, disciplined in, in a good sense, in accordance uh, with that. So, um, anyway, let me, let me um, move on. So, some slides here I'll let you read yourself. I, I, I've prepared the whole thing and I, I'm not going to go through them all, but you can see the sort of things that we're interested in as uh, uh, social pathologies of contemporary civilization. We're also interested, though, in cellulogenesis, uh, right? You know, which is the idea of right, not just the diagnostics, but if pathogenesis is one form, where are the sources of cellulogenesis, right? 
of, uh, from which a kind of helpful, joyful, purposeful life uh, uh, can emerge. Antonovsky is the person who you would associate with that cellulogenesis specifically, and his specific diagnosis is about a sense of coherence. Unless we have our lives lived with some sort of a sense of coherence, then, as it were, you know, uh, uh, you fall into uh, various problems. So resonance is also very important to us. Also, rituals and rites of passage. One of our people is a retired uh, uh, pediatric uh, consultant who worked for many years with Barrettstown. Barrettstown uh, uh, holiday camp for sick, kids, for sick kids, and he was very interested in that. You know, what is it? about the ritual and the structure and the rite of passage back to health for uh, kids who would be very, very seriously ill and so on. We're interested in things like the healing power of beauty. You know, beauty forever so long was so absolutely important. You know, beauty, truth, and the good. You know, beauty is the way to, etc., etc. But it's become as though it were just merely an aesthetic uh, category and so on. But we want to kind of recover that. And uh, love. Uh, love and its variety of forms, eros, philia, and agape, right? Contemporary civilization is stuck here, you know? In, in some strange way, it's great, isn't it? You know, we, we all want that, but at the same time, you know, philia, philanthropy, that's, uh, you know, something corporates will throw you every now and again, you know, if you need a new building at the university, there's a tax rate for them or something. And agape is something altogether above that that doesn't get talked about at all in the contemporary context. So there are some of the kind of things we're, we're, uh, we're interested in. Now, let me get to my kind of that's general context and, uh, and so on. But I want to, to uh, give you some examples and simulated illustrations. So the general thesis is that social pathologies of contemporary civilization, anxiety, depression, used to be called melancholia, used to be called ennui, used to be called all sorts of things, whatever, but suicides, uh, addictions of one sort or another, that these recur historically. And they recur historically during historical periods of transition, change, and liminality. Liminality is a kind of a master concept uh, for us. And this is Hieronymus Bosch from uh, that very interesting period. Look at what's going on. He's just coming out of the Hundred Years' War, the plague, uh, the plague was a great leveler, followed by a new social order of public health. This is the origins of what Foucault describes in, you know, discipline and punishes the, the procedures for dealing with the plague and so on and so forth. Uh, quarantine emerges at that point. The emergence of the bourgeoisie. 1450, the printing press. Like, uh, the social acceleration of communication, ideas, images, information, and so on and so forth. 1450, the witch hunts. One of the first books and generally published in the independent press was, was the Malice Malfecteur, the Hammer of Witches, you know, the torture manual and so on for this kind of thing. So the witch hunts all belong in the this context. Also, the circumnavigation of the globe, the age of exploration, Vasco da Gama, Columbus, and of course what goes with that, the sugar trade, the spice trade, the slave trade, and everything that follows from that, you know. The age of empires, the age of globalization. And Martin Luther. Reformation. So one of these things at the beginning, and this is, this is a, one of the ways that Hieronymus Bosch's work, and you're probably familiar with this, laden with these kind of uh, very strange, ambiguous uh, uh, images, uh, chimeric figures, hybrids, and so on and so forth. And this is one of my, my favorites, of course, called the Haywing, right? And here we have the harvest as a period of affluence, right? Expansion, economic growth, all etc., etc. And they're trundling along and drinking and carousing and having fun, etc., etc. And of course, it's heading here. Now, uh, so, so, um, 
But, but isn't that us, right? Late modernity, late 20th century, abundance, uh, you know, booming uh, markets, etc., uh, etc. Et the, the fourth industrial revolution, uh, uh, and so on. But of course, we know that we're in the Anthropocene, right? We know that we're torching the planet. We know that, you know, we're in, a, in the era of, are we on the cusp of it or we're relative? The sixth extension event, you know? Uh, so, uh, you know, so that, that would be maybe one of my first kind of examples of how this recurs, you know? What we're interested in is how uh, we're tracing a pattern through these historical periods, finding moments of liminality uh, and transition, and then seeing, well, what are the uh, consequences that emerge uh, from that? Here's St. Augustine, just to read, read back a little bit. By the way, first great uh, Dublin graduate, UCD graduate, mentioned James Joyce, right? And he's James Augustine Joyce. Everybody f focuses on, you know, that, uh, his use of Thomas Aquinas, right? But, uh, and did you know that Joyce himself identifies, uh, we think of him as a modernist, but he saw himself, quote unquote, as a medievalist, a medievalist. Right? And he says, this is very interesting because he saw modernity and it's all of its uh, uh, intensities and so on and so forth as somehow echoing, you know, uh, the Middle Ages, the Dark Ages and so on and so forth. Right? So, uh, so the, but this listen to St. Augustine here from, uh, he's a burger from uh, North Africa, and he's also a very, very uh, uh, skilled uh, orator and uh, teacher, and he's making a lot of money, he's a sort of a celebrity of his time, visiting the various dispersed courts of the Roman Empire, which is way on the way into collapse, right, at this stage, and uh, he's, uh, he's, uh, he, he's surfing that wave, right? He's a sort of celebrity uh, bard and uh, speechwriter for the greats and so on and so forth. And he says, but he's describing his time, he says, at the times roiling with dark fear and cruel lust, warlike slaughters, he says, our civilization, Rome hasn't collapsed just yet, he says, our, our, it's like a, a glass, horribly afraid that it should shatter into pieces, right? It's a very interesting way that he, I think, resonates with our own time, right? You know, just how uh, we have a sense of, you know, uh, how, are good times, but how fragile, how delicate it is, and so forth. He says, on all sides we experience slights, suspicions, quarrels. We do not know the heart of our friend. That's a very interesting one, right? Because he's referencing there, I'm going to suggest he doesn't have the language for it, but he's referencing some sort of disturbance in the social life world, right? He's talking about uh, squabbles in the family, problems in his friend, and even if we know it today, we don't know what it will be tomorrow, right? We, we can't trust anybody. The breakdown of uh, trust and so forth. Uh, family, friendship broken by treachery, and what of the life of the city? If that's what's going on in the life world, let's say what of the life of the of the city? Filled with lawsuits, civil and criminal. There's a Florida man at the moment uh, with I think 91 lawsuits. It's the Florida man, you know, etc., etc. Just think, think of that, you know. And then uh, uh, filled with lawsuits, civil and criminal, never free from the fear and from the actual outbreak of insurrections and civil wars. Extraordinary kind of uh, moment, and uh, you know, think of the time distance there, and at the same time, how it might resonate with our our own. Uh, by the way, interesting thing about it, uh, whatever, think of Joyce's portrait of the artist and how confessional that is, and think of St. Augustine's confessions. And what does he confess to? He confesses to these cravings and lust, uh, to sex, food, luxury. He's filled with uh, uh, envy, 
and he's uh, uh, and he's envious and uh, he desires worldly success and recognition and fame and so on, so glory, fame. He's probably the first person we meet uh, in the history of literature who would be recognized and recognizable to us as a workaholic. A workaholic, right? Never, never tires of this, always looking for something else and so on and so forth. That's a portrait of James Joyce, by the way, by Banusi, uh, uh, a Romanian uh, modernist artist or whatever, and it's a representation of Joyce. And when James Joyce's dad uh, saw it, he took a look at it and he says, God, Jim has changed a lot since I saw him last. <laughs> but anyway, so general concepts that we're trying to use or to help us make sense of particular kinds of uh, condi- conditions. Anomi, alienation. I'll let you read through these yourself. You'll recognize most of them, uh, uh, and you'll see how, in various ways, we these are helpful. I hope they're helpful uh, as a way of making sense of our present situation. Let me just give you a couple of examples of this. Liminality, mimesis, and scapegoating. Right? So, uh, a person I'm very interested in at the moment, I'll, uh, I'll recommend to you, is Nidesh Latu. He's at the University of Leuven, and he's got a series of books on mimesis, mimesis, which is imitation. And uh, let me just show you how that's relevant here. Uh, this, by the way, this is a lad from, I was going to say from Dublin, he, he lives in Dublin presently, he lives in the National Museum, uh, but he's actually a bottom man. Uh, and the interesting thing about him, of course, is he was king. They know that he was a king from the damaged his body and so on. And he's a failed king, right? He's a failed king because uh, uh, he's been been broken and damaged and so on in various ways that indicate that uh, whatever leadership quality he was presumed once to have, he let the people down or something happened that he became discredited. Hopefully that'll happen to the other candidate on the picture here in due course as well. If you promise to make America great again, the vast majority of the people wake up in five or six or seven years' time and find, oh my goodness, we're much worse off than we were before, then you end up like, or you might end up like, I'm from Cavalier, or as Mussolini did, hanging by the two places off, um, off a lamppost, like a salami. You know? uh, that, that happens. That happens when you have uh, periods of liminality, previously taken granted, the order of things become confused, and formerly credible models are scrambled, imitative processes come to the fore, along with calls for restoration of authority by a strong leader. Right? And so we see the historical recurrence of authoritarian uh, uh, populism. Now, scapegoats then, this man was a scapegoat eventually, presumably, and uh, whatever. Scapegoats are uh, sacrificed so that all of the diversities and internal divisions that characterize any and every human community are connected and discharged onto another, so that the social and body politic is purged of contaminations and impurities, and everyone else, through their unanimous condemnation of the scapegoat, is assimilated into a unified whole. And the politics of the present are defined by one day, and, and that's scapegoating. You know, it's the Mexicans, it's the illegal immigrants, it's those uh, feminists, it's uh, trans uh, people, you know, which is kind of extraordinary, right? You, you identify somebody and you say, there we go, there's a vessel, uh, you know, and if we all agree that these people are the problem, then as it were, we reconstitute social order. And that, 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 that alerts us to something as a way of reading what's going on in these uh, situations. Because apparent though they are, of course, to us, we can see that maybe what's behind them is a, a, a desire to refound society. 
a desire to reconstitute a, a, a world, to reestablish a unity when everything is divided and so on and so forth. Now, if you have on the one hand the Donald Trumps of the world doing that, doing that to great effect, it also suggests that we might be able to think of good models that can similarly be mimetically propagated and replicated. That's why so interesting in things like care, for instance. Right? You know, that's an idea that uh, that uh, suggests a kind of uh, 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 form of life, as it were, that uh, we, we could uh, celebrate, represent, and offer as an alternative to uh, 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 violence and scapegoating and so on. I wanted to offer you a diagnostics and then at least some sort of therapeutics and something. And I want to come to suggest of the many things that, that we're thinking of, uh, this idea of pleonexia. pleonexia. It's an old uh, word. Uh, it doesn't appear uh, any place in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Psychiatric Disorders and Diseases anymore. Uh, but it means a kind of a, um, an insatiable craving, a hunger. Uh, Durkheim says someplace that uh, insatiability is always a sign of morbidity. Right? Now that's very interesting because we're kind of saying, well, uh, and uh, what's happening, of course, in, uh, in, um, in the collapse of um, Athens and the collapse of ancient civilization is all of these limits, all of these models are being scrambled. Planexia emerges specifically in that context, and that's where Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, that's three. You know, generations unidentified. This that's the problem. That's the problem that uh, causes the, uh, the the collapse of uh, civilization and so on. But we find it in the historians as well, uh, uh, and we find it, of course, uh, as represented. Uh, the key point uh, the sophists uh, teach. Chasmaic is part of my bad pronunciation, but he's the guy who says, "No, no, the idea here is the wolf. The wolf." Wolf who eats for the kids. Now, he doesn't know much about wolves because wolves are actually herd animals and they're very cooperative and <laughs> all of that kind of thing. But the idea of the wolf has entered into our culture. The wolf of Wall Street, you know, the lone wolf, etc., all of this kind of thing, is a sort of a, 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 a totemic animal that characterizes the uh, uh, present. And then at the other end of the scale, you have the, the, the cattle, you know, the red cattle, uh, and so on. Um, uh, so pleonexia is that recurring uh, problem that undermines all uh, orders. Uh, characterized by these kind of things. I put up uh, Athibiades as one of the characters. He's the fellow, he's the general, he's the political leader, he's the traitor, he's the playboy, all of this kind of thing. And this is the sophist who uh, celebrates that sort of life. And here's the contemporary Athibiades. Uh, Boris, you know, and of course you see every element, every every feature of that uh, kind of insatiability, that kind of hubris, and so on, so on uh, reflected in that. And this is the powerful do what they can, and the weak suffer as they must. Explicitly emerging uh, from that, you eat what you kill. That's the principle of remuneration on uh, Wall Street and in. Um, um, the city, right? You eat what you kill. And do you know where I came across that? Was actually a president of a university, a famous university in the UK, and he, I think it might have been Dominic, did you bring this to my attention? But this was how the president introduced uh, how funding and resources would be distributed now, from now on, in that university. You eat what you kill, you know? 
you go out there and you uh, bring in some uh, cash oil, it's yours, right? But if you don't, if you're in the humanities, let's say, uh, well, you know, you might get some crumbs off the table when the rooms have eaten and so on and so forth. But that's, that's where it, uh, it, it emerges uh, from. The university is a classic example of it, you know. Uh, it means, of course, it's not just playing actually for money. It's everything, everything, honour, power, glory, glory, etc., uh, etc. Et Here's two more examples of it. Hamlet, the English Renaissance, look. Lady Macbeth, and so on. Uh, vaulting ambition, right? That's the characteristic feature of a, of a period of liminality and transition where all of these things are uh, emerging. Ruthless uh, self-interest. Now, maybe the more familiar one is Hamlet, right? The time is out of joint, right? That's very, very interesting. Uh, the time is out of joint, so we, we, we have a sense of a schism of change and so on. Right? And I cursed the spite that I ever was born to put it right. I think that my friend Anders felt like that. That he, somehow or other, because perhaps we all do it for in the human and social science, we feel well, we, we have to do something. We, we, we have to respond in some way uh, to this. But of course, you, you, you can't. And uh, you know, the famous uh, speech is full of these kind of things. But if you went into a doctor, any place in Dublin today, the doctor said, Well, so how are you feeling? And you said, Well, I'm the head of late, but wherefore I'm not lost all my work and forgotten all customs exercise. And then he gives it. He would say, You know what, Mr. John? I think you've got depression. Here's some, here's some medication for that, happy pills, etc., etc. But you see the repetitions that, whatever. And now, an interesting thing about that is how does it end, right? You know, all the chaos and the attempt to But the end is the bloodbath, you know? Stab, 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 right? And then, interesting, right? Fortinburn. It means, literally, strength, strong arm, strength in the arm, right? So that's, that's what you get in these periods of liminality and transition. The desire, and I, I'm kind of interested, I haven't thought about how the audience reacts to the arrival of Fortinburn. Thank God, somebody's here to restore order, right? And that's sort of what uh, is part of the mood at the moment that feeds the, 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 our present circumstances. You know, the popularity of Geert Wilders, the popularity of our band, the popularity of whatever. The popularity, the enduring popularity of Trump, whatever the outcome of the trials, we need Fortinburgh. We'll be... Uh, not uh, very thankful if we were. So, you know, repetition, renaissance. Uh, uh, this, is, this was Van Gogh's physician, physician doctor. Look, and he was as depressed as, as, uh, as uh, 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 whatever. And these two great guys, another great uh, UCC graduate, uh, Brian and Olam. And think of, you know, these are men who uh, lived through periods of liminality, transitioning between, he grew up under Delamere and John McQuaid, right? Uh, and, uh, and he's trying to find some sort of breathing space, and he replicates himself, multiplies himself, finally in love, finally bride, finally the company, etc., etc. And this is Fernando Pessoa. They're almost contemporaries, but Fernando Pessoa growing up and emerging as a poet and writer in very, very limited conditions of the collapse of Portugal. Portugal is in free fall ever since the earthquake, really. But then there's a series of uh, attempted restorations, of further crises, and so on. And Fernando Pessoa emerges out of that with these heteronomes, 72 different identities. Right? Now, uh, so on one hand, it's very beautiful and very heroic. I mean, even today, you know, you 
what Pessoa has emerged as a masterful of, of uh, the uh, Portuguese uh, world as well. Photograph is his style has kind of uh, uh, fallen a little bit, but still, you know, an extraordinarily interesting guy. But of course, they suffer enormously from that, right? They both have colleagues. Flannery O'Brien died of uh, throat cancer from smoking. Pessoa from cirrhosis of the liver, something like that. You know, so the the the, the difficulty of living through conditions of liminality and chaos and transition and so forth, when everything is in flux, life worlds are uncertain. The private lives are extraordinarily interesting. You know, the kind of damage suffered in that. As for Joyce himself and Nora and all the rest too, but I don't have time uh, uh, to, to get into it. So they do something wonderful and exuberant and beautiful, but still, as it were, they suffer uh, uh, from uh, the, uh, the, uh, the, the conditions of the time. So here we are presently, you know, the apotheosis of the, in the 20th century, you know, intensifying spirals, accelerating. Uh, uh, so uh, during conditions of liminal collapse, anti-structural turmoil, we have these p- pandemic social pathologies, things fall apart, the center climate hold, mere anarchy, loose upon the world, and so on and so forth. Uh, uh, and um, uh, uh, what's needed in that context, amongst the many things, are good models and good practices celebrating and reiterating the principles of care and the structures of the life world that uh, maintain these things, exemplified uh, by uh, James Joyce, obviously, and Kathleen Lynch in, in, terms of in that wonderful uh, turn in, in her work. Now, I promised you a way out. So this is uh, something at least of a way out. Right? So where did Joyce come up with Ulysses? Extraordinary. He had two things in Rome, right? It was very poor, they were very poor. But one, one thing he had was the Book of Kells, a, fac- a facsimile copy of the Book of Kells. It was the only thing he was reading at the time, he was traveling and so on. So that's very interesting because here you have this kind of illuminated manuscript from the Dark Ages. But his, his epiphany came from walking through the Colosseum, the ruins of the, the ruins of the Colosseum, which of course is. You know, that huge edifice, like many stadia uh, are, which are really, not, don't come from the apex of a civilization, but actually get built and get constructed when a civilization is in deep decline. That's what's going on in sport washing, for instance, in the Middle East and all the that sort of thing. And that was what that was, a theater of cruelty, and the gift to the uh, people, the poison gift or whatever, was the spectacle of violence and so on and so forth, all of that kind of thing. And uh, Joyce is walking through that, and he hears a bunch of English tourists, and uh, I, I can't move back my bad London accent, but this is how he represents it. And uh, they're, they're looking around, and they're full, you know, these, these are the people who are the rulers of the world at the time. It's 1906, 1907, thereabouts. So there's no thought that they were empires in any danger at all, and they're waxing lyrics about the Colosseum, so without really understanding what the Colosseum was. They think it's a monument. And, and he says, come on, here's the way out. You know, uh, and Joyce hears that, and he says, okay, that's interesting. Because what we need to do then is uh, revisit uh, something like, uh, 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 find some way of seeing the monuments of the bourgeoisie as ruins before they have crumbled. That's uh, Walter Benjamin in that uh, uh, context. The top line, by the way, comes from Joyce was being interviewed by a journalist, I think it was from the Times, the London Times. And, uh, he says, condescending, you know, and what did you do during the war, Mr. Joyce? And Joyce says, well, I wrote you this, what did you do? <laughs> it's kind of 
a great answer. Now, folks, I should shut up, but uh, I want to leave you then with these uh, two ideas. One is, if we're in a moment in the collapse of civilization, if we're seeing on many kind of the our equivalent of the Colosseum and the circus and heroes and so on and so forth, then there are only two ways of refounding it. And that's the one represent not only two ways, but there are two principal ways from the from deep anthropology, let's say. One is represented by this guy, René Girard. This is when he's on the occasion of his being elected to the French Academy and uh, he's becoming one of the immortals. And he has his sword. And you see the grip he has on that sword, right? You know, so what, what he stands for there is something like, okay, uh, we can refound civilization through acts of uh, violence, war, etc., uh, etc., et to reunite, regroup, uh, and, and redefine things. Um, uh, uh, and the scapegoat mechanism is essential to that, right? Whether Texas in 1921, I think that uh, uh, famously ugly uh, scene, or, uh, you know, Washington uh, more recently, the same idea. You know, that you re-establish uh, a, a, a sense of uh, limit, a sense of purpose, a sense of uh, solidarity uh, uh, through the uh, scapegoating uh, violence. Only one. The much better one is refounding society through uh, the beautiful gift. That's mouse. The gift relation, the general economy of the gift, and we're doing it here uh, uh, right now, uh, is the basis on which you reconstitute uh, the community of the university. That's why the destruction and closure of that common room was so important. Small little thing that reveals the big problem. You know, uh, that uh, uh, um, uh, you, you, you reestablish uh, a, a society on the basis of uh, gift relations. That's, Mar that's Margaret Mead. We usually see her as an older lady, but that's when she was doing her best work, in, probably. Uh, uh, I don't have a picture of Kathleen, unfortunately, but I have a picture of her book. Hopefully she'll be uh, happy to have it uh, represented. But care, specifically gift of care, is the foundation of the collective household of civilization. We have that, the archaeological evidence is really there, you know? Not homo economicus. That's a cartoon of what the human being is. But nonetheless, it's the one that's hegemonic, the one that's uh, uh, whatever. So the idea of care, the collective household, but founded on the principle of care. The sad thing about that one is this, right? The IFSC, uh, the, the siphon that sucks out uh, taxation that means you can't have public housing, you can't have good public health care, you can't have whatever because that resource is going on through. And in the meantime, we mine and strip mine the society down to the structure of the vocation, to the life world of the uh, hospital ward, and so on and so forth. And I'll, I'll leave you then with this, with one more recommendation. Uh, so what we need then is, is that we're uh, good models, good mentors of care. Mouse himself is extraordinarily interesting from that point of view, but Staying with our, our, our Dublin uh, team, I'm very interested in how care figures through uh, the representations of Irish culture and literature and, 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 and so on. And um, uh, Joyce's life is all suffering, and Nora is his long suffering uh, companion. Uh, and together, as it were, they, uh, they represent at least some possibilities of what it might be to live through periods of extraordinary change and danger and tragedy and so forth. And this is published in the wake of World War I. The wake was published on the very eve of World War II, you know, so, uh, uh, etc. And it's all about the role of mentors, models. 
how uh, Bloom becomes the model to Stephen uh, and, uh, and uh, Molly too, and so on. For that takes us right back to the Odyssey, or the, the, very, the, the first text, of course, which is all about mentoring, the importance of the mentoring relationship. And then, if we understand that, how do you replicate and propagate that? And there, I'm going to recommend. There, I'm going to recommend me dash long to you. So, thank you for your patience. Wide range of. I'm going to stop. Thanks for listening to this UCD Humanities Institute podcast. Our podcasts are available on Apple, Spotify, and on SoundCloud. For more information and to listen to hundreds of podcasts, go to ucd.ie forward slash humanities.